Hello and welcome to Scott Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by Marcy Doherty Else, Andres Hernandez, and Joel Kapischke of The Last Cyclist. Hello! Everybody. Hey. How are you all doing today? Actually, fabulous. Don't yeah. Can't complain. Yeah. It's like nice and warm. It's the last... almost 50 degrees, right? Yeah, it's yeah. the 50s. Well, I think so. We're so we're in Milwaukee. For those that don't know, if you Scotty haven't North. if you haven't picked up yet, North, yes. um, <laughs> uh, and it's interesting. I remember the last time we were here was that even just a month ago? It feels like maybe. No, but there I, was snow on the ground, like yeah. significant snow on the ground. Like I almost like slipped and fell last time. I was yeah, here. <laughs> and ice and snow, and it was it was definitely at that point Chicago had not had snow for a couple weeks, and I was definitely just like. Man, you know, how much... What a difference 90 miles makes. I know, right, exactly. Yeah. So it's really great. Thanks for bring, uh, welcoming us into your town, into your city, <laughs> with, warm. with warm weather. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> um, yeah, we're so glad to have you here. Um, we're at Maureen's Mom's. Yeah. It's um, North. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I am so interested in this project that you all are working on. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about The Last Cyclist? Absolutely. So this is a really unique collaboration between Cardinal Stritch University, the Holocaust Education Resource Center, or HERC, and the Jewish Community Center, the Milwaukee JCC. And the three organizations are collaborating to bring this play, The Last Cyclist, here. Uh, it's its Milwaukee premiere. So that's pretty cool. And it came about because the playwright, Naomi Pates, is friends with someone on the board of directors for Herc, and they were sort of talking. And then the connection to Stritch is that our dramaturg, uh, Dan Homeschild, is an adjunct professor at Cardinal Stritch and a researcher for Herc. So he became aware of it, and then he brought it to Stritch to Mark Burgess, who um, is directing the play, and he's also the chair of the theater department there. So that's kind of how it came about, and that's how it got brought to Stritch. And Mark at Stritch said, well, this would be a really unique opportunity to put it in our season, but collaborate with the larger professional arts community in Milwaukee and have it be a combination of professional actors alongside the student actors, as well as professional designers with student designers. So it's this enormous collaboration between not only those three organizations, but also the art, larger arts community mm -hmm. here in Milwaukee. So that's kind of how it came to be here today, which is really interesting in and of itself. But the play itself, The Last Cyclist, is a cabaret written in 1944 by a man named Carol Spink, who was an inmate in the Terezin concentration camp. And we are performing it. It is a living piece of history. Yeah. and. What I find so interesting is, and I think that this is common among historical documents that are, that have potential to be lost to, lost in kind of the vortex of atrocity, where not, it, it is a play that is, you know, very much real, very much written down, but is, the current version is from a recollection of someone who acted in it. Correct. So... Laura Monagle plays a woman named Yana Shedova, and she was the sole survivor of this acting troupe. So this play was reimagined and reconstructed by Naomi Pates from Yana's memories of performing this play. And it is a 
absurdist comedy. Yes, you heard me right. This is a Holocaust comedy. Wow. Well, so I'm very interested in, before we dive to, I, I think that a, a bulk of this conversation will be about the play, but, but before we go too deeply into that, I do want to touch on the dynamic of working professionals with student actors. And today we're lucky enough to have one of the um, Cardinal Church students, Andres. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about your experience thus far you know, coming up in with Cardinal Stritch, you know, in that kind of educational hub and having the opportunity to work with professionals. Yeah, of course. Um, I am actually the only student on the cast who isn't actually a part of the theater program. Oh, cool. I'm just a regular daytime <laughs> student. Uh, I did acting uh, all throughout high school and when I was younger. Um, but when I got to college, I specifically... Um, involved myself in the track and field but as I got um, more friends throughout Stritch I involved myself more with theater because I ended up having a lot of theater friends and I've been doing theater at Stritch now for about two years mm -hmm. so this is my sixth show at Stritch and so far it's I I wish I would have been in a lot more plays um, especially my freshman and sophomore year um, but with the question about how has it been working with uh, professional actors, I think it's been amazing. It's been great to have people who've been out in the real world, in the real, real world, mm -hmm. come in and kind of help us and lead us along a little bit, but also kind of um, be our friends at the same time. So it's not just uh, as that we see them as mentors or teachers or someone who's in a higher position, but we also see them as our equals because many of, or actually all of the students who will be in the show are graduating. So they will be in the professional world cool. in a couple months. Nice. Well, and that's something that, um, so Daniel and my background is that we are, we come from opera and we've got, and you know, we've gone through the university system and the conservatory system. And, um, something that we talk about a fair amount on this show is the fact that a lot of programs don't adequately prepare you to be a part of the community at large. You learn a lot of technical stuff. You learn a lot of, you know, you, you read a lot of books, you read a lot of plays. And there's even a degree to which you learn kind of like the theory of entrepreneurship yeah. sometimes. But, but seldom do a lot of programs offer you the opportunity to actually interact with the community at large. So, In a hands-on way. Yeah. That... And so um, I know that you're not a part of the theater program, but... Having now been a, a part of um, having now been a part of the um, the theater program kind of peripherally, yeah. Um, how has your perception in working with these professional actors of kind of the realities of being a performer changed? Uh, I've gotten a lot more respect just for theater in general, being able to um, see what some of these professional people have done in their in their resumes. Uh, but as well with uh, what we've done at Stritch with all the performances, um, it is very student driven. So we do have student directors, not student directors, student uh, manage, managers, um, designers and all of that. So it is very student oriented, but having the professionals on campus and during the rehearsals and all of this really helps to kind of amp up our uh, spirit towards doing this professionally, even myself, uh, now that even though I don't have a theater degree or anything like that, I do have this passion for theater. So having uh, the professionals here kind of makes me want to go to that next level. Cool. Nice. Well, in something you said, Andre Stroll, tell me what you think. Um, you, 
you said that, you know, it very much feels like camaraderie and friends and we're all equals. I totally agree with that. I don't think there's any sort of hierarchy that has evolved or even was established, which is good. Saying like, well, I'm a non-student and you're a student. We're all in the same cast and it's very much an ensemble piece. Don't you think, Joel? Yeah, that's been really disappointing for me. I thought there was going to be a hierarchy. <laughs> I thought I was the lead in this play. Um, I thought there was going to be like buckets of Gatorade being dunked on people. Really yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's really been great. And I think in, in any theatrical experience, the more perspectives you can bring into the room, the more rich the experience is going to be. And this is one of the things that drew me to the project. Um, was the chance to work with a diverse cast, including students, including professionals. Um, so that was that was one of the great draws for me. I've had opportunities to be an actor working with uh, working with students a couple times, and it's always just been a fantastic experience. And so, so that's one of the one of the things that I wanted to you know that most most exciting about it for me. So. I think you've learned so much so myself as an actor, right? I think you guys know my background. I didn't go to school for theater either. I have a degree, in, I have a math degree. Mm. And, and I have a computer science degree. And I didn't do any theater in college. <laughs> so I started after college um, working in the theater. And that's a whole separate interview. <laughs> but um, I mean, it's not very mysterious. Um, but I've always learned so much by watching other actors and their rehearsal process. So I've really enjoyed watching my, of my fellow castmates, student or non-student, and watching their process and watching the things they try. Um, one thing that I know when I was a younger actor, I had a lot of insecurities about making bold choices or big choices because you just, you want to look good in rehearsal in front of your castmates, especially yeah. early on. And that's a really hard thing to get over and it's taken me time and now I'm a complete fool. And Joel's a great example of really doing things in trying different things in a large way and not being afraid mm -hmm. to fail. And that's such a great example. And there's other cast members that do that as well. But I really sort of challenged myself additionally in this process to say, one thing you can do, Marcy, is you can try to put those fears aside and try to set an example for making very wild, bold, loud, distinct choices early on in the rehearsal process, because that will, that helped me as an actor when I saw other actors doing that. So I don't know if that's something that younger actors struggle yeah. with. But. Yeah, it was definitely one of my first shows, uh, tar the Tartuffe. It's kind of hard to feel comfortable in your own skin when you have to be in a character's skin. So that's not mm -hmm. who you necessarily are. Um, and me, myself, I tend to be a little bit more reserved with people that I don't know, but I had to go into this show and be this outlandish character and I had to go from being shy to being super outlandish within a couple of weeks and so it was something that I had to kind of get over and even now with The Last Cyclist I have to kind of be a little bit more reserved in my um, portrayal of the actor just because of how he comes into the first scene um, which is a dress rehearsal he comes in a little bit more reserved a little bit more um, scared um, from the day's work so I have to kind of feel comfortable in my own skin, but as well as being in another character's skin. Well, in this play, The Last Cyclist, is an absurdist comedy. This is a farce. It is ridiculous. So big, bold, wild choices, they have to be played because that's how this was written. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the character you play is described as sort of the, you know, uh, 
Carol Spink was the Charlie Chaplin of the group. He was the class clown. So, you know, Joel really leads the charge and gives us that energy to um, kind of take that baton and, and run with it on the track for the duration of the show. So, Well, and I, I don't remember if this was in the pre-interview or on air, but I know that there is a certain aspect of a play within a play. Um, and so I'm curious for you within, so is the play at large a farce or is the play within a play a farce? The play within the play is, okay. is this farcical cabaret that Carol Schwenk and uh, probably, was probably devised amongst this troupe of actors uh, that they created and performed. And then what Naomi did is recreated that to the best of her ability and then placed it within a context. So we don't just have this absurd farce that it tells this uh, dark, biting, and very, very funny tale that, you know, is very analogous to the Nazis in Germany. Um, but within that, she, she sets the stage. So we get to know Terezin a little bit. And the people who are in Terezin, Carol Schwenk and Jana Shedera and, and other characters who are, who are uh, examples or amalgamations mm-hmm. of, of people who are in the camp. Um, and so we get to see them at the end of their workday showing up for a rehearsal. Um, and then, which is then going to, which is what we will then perform. We will run through the rehearsal, which is the performance of the absurdist piece. And then, and then a little short epilogue uh, at the end of the rehearsal. So it really kind of, it takes this absurd thing Mm -hmm. and then puts it into the context, which is really necessary for the audience to, to get, Oh, who are these people and who is, who is their audience? I was going to ask about this because that is something I find very interesting. I think context, it's very hard to have art without context, I think. And, um, this is such a unique one. So maybe with what we should do is provide some more context, which is not that I think we maybe have a bit, but I would love to talk more. Like who is that audience? Like, what is that space? Like, like, you know, we were talking before about maybe this was also before the pre-interview, mm-hmm. but, um, kind of the dynamic of Terezin and mm-hmm. the, yeah. the, the artistic climate there. So Terezin was a walled city and it was about 40 miles from Prague and it was one of the camps that um, folks moved through on their way to the extermination camps. And it was very unique because it was built like a city, walls and buildings and things like that. Mm -hmm. And many of the cultural and political Jewish elite came through Terezin and, and stayed in, ended up staying in Terezin because of the nature of the sort of camp that it was. Some people stayed there for great periods of time. How long was your, was uh, Carol Spank there? Four years? She was there for four years. And it was, it was a work camp. So mm-hmm. people were just hanging out with their Correct. factories mm-hmm. um, that were, you know, so during the day, our characters were doing things to support the Nazi war, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that level of not just were we being worked to death, but we were being worked um, in support of the system. In support yeah. of, of everyone making who was trying bullets, to Making bullets, making, you know, yeah. people were making bullets. Yeah. But what I find so interesting about this is that, yes, it was a work camp, but it was also 
kind of a, and this is something you mentioned before, this kind of PR machine. It was. It was a very much a propaganda camp. So when you think about in today's world where if you're selling a home, you bring someone in to stage it and make it look a certain way, um, they very much had beautification efforts in Terezin and, and staged it when the Red Cross came through or other polit political dignitaries would come through. Because, of course, there were global concerns about the treatment of the Jews at this time mm -hmm. by other countries, by organizations like the Red Cross. And so when folks came through, they would say, you know, they'd show them the soccer games that the um, folks who lived in Terezin got to play, concerts, lectures, art, theater. There were all of these activities to make it look like a thriving sort of city and that the that the Jews were being well taken care of. And yeah, wasn't all being we've done is we've given them an opportunity to be together with with people mm -hmm. of their own kind and look at their thriving, they're creating art, they're, mm -hmm. they've got all this. So, you know, was the was the line that they were given and, mm -hmm. and what they were trying to show through the propaganda films. And so, in fact, the Red Cross Commission was coming through Terezin, was their, their uh, first stop. And they were so impressed by what they saw that their delegation ended there, but they were supposed to go to Auschwitz. Oh, God. That was their next stop. But they canceled the rest of their tour, I guess, if that's what you'd call it. Um, after being in Terezin, they were like, oh, we've seen enough here. Things seem fine. And one of our castmates, Maggie Marks, her friend had visited Terezin. Um, and they showed one of the buildings. And there were just the long walls of sinks. They weren't connected to any water. Mm -hmm. If anyone in the Red Cross would have gone and tried to turn that knob to just check the water, nothing would have come out. So there was all of this staging to make things look different than they were and and so that's another level of theater that's at play out yeah. in this is that terezin was theater for the nazis to show to the rest of the world and here's what's amazing though is that the people the prisoners of terezin they in order to give themselves hope and life and something to live for they poured their energy into creating this culture lectures concerts mm -hmm. plays all these things um to really get themselves, to boost morale for themselves and for the other prisoners in the camp. Because of course, this would have been a really hot ticket to come and watch a rehearsal. You would have risked capture and probably being killed for sneaking out of your barracks to see this. You would have traded food and you already were getting very little food to get a seat to watch this. You know, they, just the, yeah. it was a morale boost for everyone. But, you know, these sorts of activities, uh, to me, it's such a remarkable sense of spiritual resistance to this mm -hmm. horrific conditions. And the fact that they, and to me, it's just this idea that, you know, there always have been and there always will be people who use art to fight darkness. Yeah. And that's really powerful. Um, but and I probably digressed off of your question no, a little but, bit. <laughs> but I want to, I, I really want to um, touch more on one thing, which is I know, uh, how much research has been has been put into this work is is so fascinating and important, and I think that with with a work that is so historically foundation, how foundationally historic it is, um, uh, that is so important. And I also think there's uh, I know that you had mentioned this again. I don't know if this is the pre-interview or the pre interview, yeah. <laughs> but um, but you had mentioned that it, it's been very important for you to do that in a way that's ethically and making sure these perspectives because these stories, of course, need to be told. But figuring out how to do it in a way that is 
um, both representative of, of those perspectives is so important. Um, how did that, how has that gone for like, how, what has worked in that regard and, and what have you, what has been kind of the guidelines and, and figuring out how to do the research and, and to tell these stories in a way that's thorough and, and respectful and everything like that. We have a lot of dramaturgy resources at our disposal through Herc and JCC and even the university. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a Holocaust survivor that came in to talk to the cast and I mean, that was just an amazing afternoon yeah. to hear to hear this guy. And the first thing he said is, of course, he's like, every survivor story is going to be different. I'll tell you mine. Um, I can tell you a little that I know of others. And uh, and so he he told us his story, which was uh, you know incredible and um, just astounding. Um, the biggest takeaway for me, and, and you two might have had different takeaways from it. The biggest takeaway for me was. His lightness of spirit, his you know that hope endured in this man after after going through this horrific experience that he he ultimately came out the other side with with such a hopeful outlook on life and just a, a thirst for living and you know really kind of put into perspective for me the things that I bitch and moan about you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, the minor, you know, first world annoyances and stuff like that. And it's just like, you know, if he can go through this and, and carry this lightness through and this generosity of spirit to others, you know, maybe I can kick it up a notch in, in my <laughs> life. Um, but it, oh, it's just, no matter how much research we do, I think we can only begin to get a tiny hint mm -hmm. of, of what it would be like to, right. to be there. Um, uh, you know, and so that's where, uh, you know, we devour as much as actors, we devour as much of that background as we can and then try to just internalize it because there's no way you can act to that research, mm -hmm. um, and just try to hope that we're, we're honoring, honoring their memory, um, honoring the story that we're telling, uh, you know, uh, in the best way that we can. I'm, I'm curious, um, at what point in the process uh, was that, did you have the opportunity to speak with that survivor? It's very on, very early on in the process. It was way before we had any rehearsals. It was probably oh, cool. one of the first things that we did. We established that connectivity with someone who has had experience or lived through something like that. Um, and even before that, we were given, I, I believe like two or three months with not only the script, but also background information online and stuff like that to kind of internalize into our characters as we kind of got ready for rehearsal. I'm, I'm curious. So I do want to touch more on the dramaturgy involved, but I'm curious, um, and I, I'd love for all of you to speak on this. Um, how has the process of portraying an actor and portraying the character that that actor is portraying, how like how has that i guess how has that gone so for me the hardest part was portraying the character within the farce with within the last cyclist the character of ma'am is who i play and it was because very early on i i came into rehearsals with a deep and remarkably justifiable reverence for the horrible historical events that we refer to as the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And it felt really disrespectful to me to come in and play this ridiculous, crazy character. So she is a 
and she's an inmate in the um, mental institution within this play who rises to power as the dictator. So you can sort of see what that allegory ah, is. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> so it felt disrespectful to me to come in and play that. I had this cloud of reverence, and I. So um, what really freed me, and I think it was important for many of the cast, was our dramaturg said, "If you want to honor the people who performed this and who lived, who the people, the actors you are playing. Yeah. So Marcy, if you want to honor Elena." through your portrayal of ma'am, you have to give that character all the light, love, laughter, sex, joy, everything. You've got to pour everything into the absurdity of it and embody that character. That's how you honor Elena as Marcy because that's what they did. This was their escape. This is their, what they get to do. This is what they gave up sleep and risk life and limb to do. Um, so for me, it was... It was that. It was, you are honoring this person by playing this ridiculous absurdity because that's what she would have done. Well, and also it's what she would have wanted to have been remembered for. Like, she wouldn't have wanted to be remembered as someone who died, like one of the six million who died. Mm -hmm. She would have wanted to be remembered as the person who created the role of ma'am. Yeah. So that helped me a lot, but that was a struggle I had as an actor is it just felt really daring and disrespectful to do the ridiculousness within the larger context of what happens historically. But our dramaturg said, you have to let that go. Those historical bookends exist, but this play, the last cyclist, this farce, you have to give it everything it needs and deserves and that's how you honor the people i i don't know if your experience is different as far as how you approach um so for me i had the opportunity to um enter some of my artwork for a art exhibit that we have um going on with the last cyclist uh it's called resilience um and i was able to kind of take a couple weeks to kind of delve deep into my character and kind of understand who he was, what he had done. Um, so my character was Tomas. He had a wife, a daughter, and a son. His son was sent off to London and his wife and daughter were sent out to the East somewhere. I don't think they ever figured out where, but it was kind of like having um, a pool that I just dove into once I got my hands on some some materials to make some art and I made some pieces that kind of helped me reflect on my character and how I should be portraying my character because uh, like I said a, a while ago my character comes in a little bit like scared and timid but by the end of the show he's happy he's kind of let go of all the things that have gone on through the day and in uh, my character description it specifically says how my character really loved, uh, looked up to Spank and all of the things that he would do to kind of elevate our spirits throughout the entire rehearsal process. So that was one of the things that I did to kind of delve deeper into my character and kind of understand who he was and pay an homage to that person. Well, and based on what you said in terms of like describing yourself and like your own, you know, when you, when you, Andres, first meet people, you're shy and reserved, but then open up. Yeah. And so um, what was the experience for you of portraying a character obviously in a different like a different lived experience but of kind of the same um proclivity yeah i think the whole entire rehearsal process helped by having um 
professional actors come in because again there are people that I don't necessarily know um, so as the rehearsal schedule and the rehearsals have gone on I've become more and more um, connected with uh, some of my castmates and I just feel more open to them going up and just having a conversation or having them come up to me and ask me questions or just having a day-to-day -day conversation instead of me being reserved and being out of maybe the entire process. I don't know if any of you could have remembered, but at the beginning I wasn't very close. I, that's just how the way, in the, in the rehearsal process, I wasn't very close to anyone. I just kind of reserved myself. And then as it goes on, then that's how I kind of open up and being able to transfer that into the actual show and playing a character that kind of goes in and is more reserved and then opens up as the play uh, goes on, kind of helps connect the two and make the um, acting a little bit easier. Nice. Joel, so I'm so your your character is kind of the ringleader. Yeah. Um, can you can you speak to your experience in embodying this role? Well, it's frankly it's it's a bit daunting if I think about it too much, so I try not to. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, this is a real life uh, hero. Um, this is a guy who, you know, in the face of all this, uh, used his talents to lift the spirits of uh, of everyone there and um and, and that to me that's that's what i honed in on that's you know i consider myself more than an actor or a singer i consider myself an entertainer and i i love doing that and i love bringing joy to people and i think it's transformative um when it even when it doesn't have meaning and in a piece like this where you can bring laughter and joy and there's other layers of meaning. It's, it's just one of the most extraordinary opportunities. But this is a guy who, you know, made such a profound impact and, and lived lived his life in, in such a, a beautiful way um, that it's like, oh man, I've got to play that. Um, you know, it can be it can be overwhelming. Um, initially, you know, I I will admit I was not drawn to this project. Um, I was like, I don't know, man, this is this Holocaust comedy. Uh, and I, you know, and I read the script and I'm like, oh, I just don't know. But, um, you know, but it's like as an actor, I was invited to audition. That's first of all, that's compelling. Yeah. Um, and and then I met Mark and Mark. Um, I just loved everything he had to say about this. I felt like he and I had an easy rapport right away. And, um, you know, much like last time we talked, I thought, I thought the whole idea for Chorus Line, um, you know, it's like, I, that'll never work. That's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> and people way smarter than me said, come play with us. And so I said, yes. And, and so there's a similarity there for me in this piece. You know, uh, one of the things about, about Shrank was that, uh, you know, at the end, you know, he lifted everyone's spirits for so long. And at the end, he was beaten and had nothing left. And um, his ending is very, it's very. Other prisoners would gather up bread for him and try to get him to sing his song of defiance that he wrote. That's part of this show as yeah, well, you get to the Terezy March. And it's just, like I said, it's kind of overwhelming yeah. to try to take all of that in and try to play that. Um, and so for me, I had to just immediately get past all of that mm -hmm. and just concentrate on, you know, what is the, you know, what is my character doing? Just playing the moments, playing, you know, the ridiculous absurdity 
uh, that I get to play as this bumbling hero in the cabaret. Um, for me, one of the most impactful things that I say in the show is as this ringleader, and I'm gathering everyone, and you know, everyone comes in from their day of work, and we've got this dress rehearsal, and people are complaining because you know it sounds like Schwenk was a, quite a taskmaster. Um, even in the setting, he wasn't going to accept anything less. He was going to work <laughs> them. And he says, look, you have to forget anything that's bothering you. Because the only thing that matters is making the audience laugh, making them cry, getting them to forget for a moment. And to me, that is just, it's so inspiring that I get to step into those shoes and, and hopefully honor that man and honor this story. And just that, you know, if I can give 1% of who Carol Schrank was to that audience, I think I will have succeeded. Um, so that's what I'm shooting for. So it's, this story is like extremely, like as art makers, I think that this is the kind, it sounds to me that this is the kind of project that like, one can only hope to be a part of. Yes. I'm, I'm curious, like, I know that you're, like, in it. Like, you're like, currently, as we sit here, like, you're, you know, this is, tonight is the final dress rehearsal, and so you're you're very much in it. Um, what do you, as artists, as entertainers, as, you know, burgeoning, you know, in Andres' case, burgeoning, you know, theater actors, what do you hope to take out of this experience and apply to future projects i think i would like to take the same amount of work ethic and dedication devotion research to this project to any other project uh, uh specifically because this one required a lot of historical factual um facts that i want to be able to do the same thing with any other kind of role or any other kind of art that i create to be able to be more involved in in the process because throughout the entire rehearsal uh, process through the research process um, every time I look something up it's like I find something new mm -hmm. and something that keeps making everything feel fresh and uh, exciting so if I could be able to apply the same kind of work ethic that I did for this to anything else that I do in my regular day life that would be amazing well um, how about you go ahead okay, I'll jump back in okay <laughs> um, I I think you're right, Maureen. To me, this is a one of those projects that is sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. I look back on some of the other things I've done, and I've enjoyed everything I've had the opportunity to do. But there have been some pieces that have been so unique that, like, I'll never have this experience again, or I'll never have that experience again. And that's not always true for plays and musicals. You can have very similar experiences. This is one of those things that I will never have this sort of experience again. It's just really very special. I love playing historical characters. You know this yeah. because I do. Right. Um, and I love the idea of learning as much as I can about them. There's a huge responsibility, like Joel said, I feel, when you portray someone from history um, to honor who they were, um, the good, bad, and the ugly. Sometimes you play horrible historical people and, and you need to honor all the facets of humanity. But I love playing historical characters. I love the idea of honoring who they were and what they contributed at the point in time that you're learning about them. And I also like being able to take that through my own performance mm -hmm. and doing it my way. 
Um, so I, I really enjoy that. And anytime I get an opportunity to do that, I, I jump at it. In this particular case, it feels different and extraordinarily special because I think the message of this play is that it's everyone's responsibility to stand up against racism, prejudice, bullying. We all have a personal accountability and we can all make a difference. And the message is as relevant today as it was in 1944. Mm -hmm. And there's a real current responsibility for that in, in our world today. So I think it's really special. And yeah, I just, I, I really, like Joel in the beginning, I was like, you know, this play is very interesting and I think it's important. It has an important piece uh, in a important place in history and in our current times. But at first I was like, that's not really my jam. I'm sort of more of a comedic actor in many ways. And uh, boy, this seems like a very, very difficult, intense material. Mm -hmm. And I read it a few more times and went, you know what? I really like this. This is an important piece of work and I want to be a part of it. So cool. So I was, I was actually thinking about this earlier today because tonight is our final dress rehearsal. And we're doing a show about, about a final dress rehearsal. Yeah, <laughs> and and I was I was actually thinking it's like you know this experience has already been so rewarding that if our show was shut down after tonight, it would still be an incredibly rewarding experience. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 then it occurred to me that uh, just you know oh my god what how impactful is this going to be once we have an audience. You know, the, not just the opportunity to dig in and work on this story, but now it's like, oh, crap, now we're actually going to be telling this story. And we're going to have a couple hundred people in the room like they had. And we're going to, you know, that other character in the play is now going to show up. And so we're, we're going to get the, have these other human beings in the room who are experiencing this. And I think it's just going to take it off the charts for us as far as what an incredible experience this has been. Because, of course, that is what happened with the last cyclist. So they were, uh, the prisoners were performing their final dress rehearsal. The Council of Jewish Elders were there and they were watching it. And after the final dress rehearsal, they said, no, you cannot perform this. This ends here. Uh, it is too thinly veiled. We're going to get in trouble. This is, everybody knows that the cyclists are the Jews and the lunatics are the Nazis. We're going to get in trouble. There's no way you're performing this. So the play was, the final dress rehearsal was the last time it was performed. So it was never performed for an audience. We're performing it for an audience. That didn't happen for those actors. And that's another really special thing, right? Elena, Carol, Tomas, those people didn't perform this play for an audience. It was shut down. So we are taking that forward in 2019 and performing it for them, for an audience. It's really yeah. interesting. So yeah, and there were it's the so theater. Deep. You know, the, the theater troupe had performed other pieces that, mm -hmm. um, by all accounts, were were also somewhat daring, but not as as bold as this one. And to a certain extent, it, it sounds like they were given a fair amount of leeway because yep. the Nazis thought, you know what? We've got you in a walled city. We know where the next transport is going and who's going to be on it. Fine. You want to sing ahead. your little song of protest? Yeah. Go right ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because the song of protest that's that's in the piece that Carol Schrenk wrote, he wrote for the very first cabaret 
that he performed in Terezin, and it was part of every cabaret that he performed. And it became a song that all everyone in the camp would sing. It became an anthem, really. Right. And and so they like they let him do that, and they they let they let them do a lot, which which really says a lot about you know the Jewish elders like no no this is this is too far. Well, we should talk a little bit about exactly maybe what that is. So the last cyclist, where does the title come from? Right. Mm -hmm. So there was a dark joke that made the rounds in Europe between the First and Second World Wars. That was the inspiration for this for this play. And um, the way it goes is this. The first person says, the Jews and the cyclists are responsible for all our misfortunes. Why the cyclists? Why, Why the Jews? Oh, yeah. Ah. So this is an absurdist <laughs> allegory that expands on this Jews and the cyclists theme, where cyclists are the victims of events of a mental institution who escape and take over the outside world. So cyclists as in people who ride bicycles? Yes, yeah. so basically okay, great. they hound, oppress, exile, <laughs> yeah. capture anyone who's ever owned a bicycle, who's related to someone who owned a bicycle, who talked about getting a bicycle for generations back. So it's a very thinly veiled, like yeah. we know, you know, so the Jewish elders said, everyone's going to know that the cyclists are the Jews and the lunatics are the Nazis. Mm -hmm. This is not going to happen. Um, so the last cyclist refers to the character, Bojoy Oblis, that Carol Spink plays. Um, who's the, who's the bumbling hero. He's, mm -hmm. you know, he's, uh, an optimistic young man and, um, who accidentally, you know, who buys a bicycle to impress a girl and oh. has never ridden it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden gets swept up in this, in this, you know, Oh, we're we're rounding up all the cyclists, and he's like, I I actually have never ridden that, you know. And then at each step along the way, he fumbles his way out of disaster, and he's the last cyclist who hasn't been shipped off. Um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, things don't get better under under the lunatics rule, and people are start saying, well, maybe it's not the cyclists. And then they're like, wait, we've got one last cyclist. He must be to blame for everything. Mm -hmm. And so we're finally going to get rid of him once and for all. Um, and then that backfires in a hilarious way as well. But that's the whole idea that yeah. getting wow. rid of all the cyclists will solve the problem. And I've had some people ask me, like, well, why? What's the significance of bicycles? It's like, exactly. It doesn't matter. It yeah. can be yeah. the last person that sat in a chair or the last person that ate yeah. a strawberry. Or it, it, it but it came, it came, it grew out of how, yes. you know, how were that joke? you know, found, found footing and became yeah. a, a running joke throughout the Jewish communities yeah. between, you know, after the First World War, you know, the Jews were also, people were blaming the Jews after the First World War as well, um, which gave rise to the, to the, to the Nazis, you know, or at least they, they seized on that as right. a scapegoat. Um, so it was just expanding on, you know, that old Jewish joke. Mm -hmm. So... Oh, go ahead. I I really am always fascinated by um, the t the palette for the absurd. I think the the um, the grounds for which a generation, a group of people, or culture ends up 
being drawn to the absurd is really fascinating. I think it happens for a lot of different reasons, but um, but I think this is I think this is a, a, a unique and interesting take on on why that might be. And, and so, what I'm curious for uh, for you is why do you think what do you think drew because you know like the play could have been any genre, I guess. Um, I mean, not not this story, but you get what I'm saying, like. There, the it seems like the art making that happened at Terrazine could have been any art making. Um, what do you think about absurdist absurdism and and the surreal and and exploring that space? Like, what do you think? Why do you think that was? Well, I think that came from Carol Schenck. He was part of um, an avant garde theater movement mm-hmm. in Prague. Um, Jana and Elena were also part of that. Um, and I think that that's just, you know, what the milieu that he used, you know, he, uh, always had strong political stuff in his work. And so I, you know, I, I don't know if his other pieces were also absurd, um, or if he said, you know what, we're going to tackle this head on, so we need to put a twist on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's certainly, you know, I, I think absurdity and humor, um, when it, it's weird, but sometimes the best way to tell a true story is to distort it and put it through a weird prism and actually more truth comes out the other end than if you, if you had just told, told the story in a, in a documentary style. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think that's why in Shakespeare, it's the fools that are actually the ones that are mm-hmm. saying what's going on. Mm-hmm. They're the ones with the most sanity and, you know, I think when you look at what was happening to the Jews in Terezin and just the Jews generally at this point in history, you'd have to think, you know, we look at it and we go, how could somebody do that? That's absurd, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I think when, when they're faced with their reality, I think that what, what you do is you do funnel it through an odd sense of humor so you can tell the most truth. It's safe to bury truths in humor. That's why when people say something sometimes, like, oh, I'm only kidding, um, there's actually almost always a little bit of truth in, mm-hmm. in that because that's the safe way to express those very deep, raw, real feelings. And I, I think that was a vehicle for it too. Well, and I've been, uh, I, I know Mark, our director, has, has kind of referred to the play as a sort of uh, political cartoon come to life. Um, I've certainly drawn analogies in my own mind with, um, uh, you know, Seth Meyers or Stephen Colbert, people who are, you know, mm-hmm. on a nightly basis taking what's going on in politics in the world and filtering it through humor. Um, Saturday Night Live. Yep. Yep. Of course, the interesting thing about Saturday Night Live is the fact that they're taking what's going on um, and filtering it through a humorous lens to kind of draw out those truths. Mm-hmm. But in a way that that it is enjoyable to digest, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then to add it to that is is the level that they that you know our our glorious leader is um, <laughs> then tweeting and attacking them and saying that they should be shut down for what they're saying, and you know in in that is where the echoes of you know this piece just still being you know all too relevant you know it could it could easily be a museum piece and say oh 
you know, let's look back at this, this thing in time that was horrible and we, could, we can all learn from it great. But in fact, it's that and it's absolutely horrifyingly but still relevant today. Yeah. Well, we have a few minutes left. Thank you all so much for being on. It's been Thank an absolute pleasure. Yeah, this, this is, is new. We've actually, I, I've been for so long, just like been so needing to get the spiel out that I've stopped, that I didn't used to always be like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> like, thank you oh, for joining so, us. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for having us. I yeah. mean, there's, gosh, I think we could stay here for two more hours. And yeah, honestly. There's so Absolutely. much to talk about. But, um, you know, I think, I, I know some people I've talked to that have said, oof, it's a Holocaust play. I don't think I can, mm-hmm. I don't think I can do that. Um, and then when I say, but it's funny, then that's when you get the look like, what sort of monster are you? <laughs> um, you know, I, if I could, I would encourage people to come see this piece of living history. This is a piece of history, people. Come and mm-hmm. see this. And don't be afraid of feeling sad or guilty. You, We all feel sad and guilty about the Holocaust. This is a terrible moment in our history as people. But come and experience the light and the love and the joy and the hope and take what Joel described. What I think the audience will walk away from is exactly what you described, that these people brought so much hope and beauty and laughter in the darkest of times. Mm -hmm. If they can do that, we can spread a little light and love and laughter in dark times. And in our own lives, we can see that light in our, in our dark days. And so if I could, I would encourage people to put aside that idea of, I don't want to see a Holocaust play. Or this is going to feel like homework. Right. Um, um, it is meant to be funny. Audiences in Terezin laughed. Audiences today should laugh. Mm-hmm. Now, it, they might not. And, might, and it might be a very uncomfortable laughter because we have the historical construct. We know that six million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't something that they knew at the time. They really thought they were going home tomorrow, next week, whatever, you know, and, and that that's sort of what kept them, them going. I think if they would have really listened to the rumors or accepted those as truth, they, they wouldn't have been able to go on each day. So... I don't know. That's what I always try to tell people. I try to say, you come see this. And also, when you get a chance to see a piece of history like this. Yeah. Um, the show itself is, you know, about 75, 80 minutes, no intermission. So, you know, it's not going to feel like, oh, I don't really like sitting through a long history mm-hmm. play or anything like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I encourage people to put those reservations aside if they think they're going to feel sad or that it's going to feel too heavy. And come and experience this. It's a really unique opportunity here in Milwaukee to see something being done like this. And I can, the, the set is incredible and beautiful. The, I mean, everything that's being done surrounding this production is just outstanding. And I think there are some surprises in the set that people will really um, appreciate. There's quite a lot of theater magic that occurs to set you inside of that attic in Terezin. Wow. And I think it's pretty remarkable. Um, I mean, I've been able to stand on a lot of stages as of you in your career, and I'm really impressed by everything that's that's been done uh, for this production. So That's so cool. I guess those are my sort of, my closing thoughts. Is I think <laughs> wow. Close. 
You know the last thing we do with all of our guests, don't you? I do, but it's I also the, want to give those folks a chance to... Yeah, the, well, it's a one-minute plug for anything that you have upcoming, so oh, it's very obvious. Yeah. Oh, no, we, well, just, we, we haven't counted that yet. You're not even started Oh, yet. really? Good, because you know, I haven't brought yeah. up the one thing I no. have to for <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so we have uh, a one-minute plug for... Um, anything you have upcoming. Uh, anything you have upcoming. Sometimes it's very obvious, like letting people know when dates are to see a show that is going up very soon. Um, otherwise, we love hearing about uh, any shout-outs to folks that you think are also doing dope work um, or any media that you're personally consuming, self-care, or otherwise music, movies, TV shows, things like that. I'll take the easy one. Sure. Right? <laughs> Which is, I always do that. I jump on the mm-hmm. easy one right away. So, The Last Cyclist, uh, April 5th through the 14th, mm-hmm on the campus of Cardinal Stritch University at the Nancy Kendall Theater. Ample free parking. I know that's a thing, you know, a lot of yeah. ample free no, parking. No, coming from Chicago, yeah. like if you say free parking, it's like, oh, I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> ample free parking. Oh, what is it, like 10 spots? Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, a beautiful theater, really great. Tickets are not expensive, very, um, very affordable. So lots of opportunities to see it. And, um, and you could bring kids to it. Too. Yes, you can. It is... It, it's a great way. We've got one cast member, I think those kids who are eight and nine, eight and, and nine. she said, oh, I'm definitely bringing them. And it'll be a great way to start a conversation about this. Right. Because um, it, it presents it in a way that, you know. With cyclists and crazy people. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. Jews and Nazis. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, last cyclist, Cardinal Stritch University collaboration with Stritch, Herc, and JCC, April 5th through the 14th. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, accompanying that as well, uh, art exhibit. Um, in the art gallery that is right next to the Ninth and Kendall Theater, uh, with some artwork uh, that includes some student artwork, some professor artwork, uh, my artwork as well. Go check that out. Um, so go and have a good time. It'll be a part of the uh, ticket that you buy for the last cyclist. So you'll be able to go into the gallery and check out some dope artwork. Some art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then shout out to all my other students out there that are doing the work as well. <laughs> Amanda, Laura, Monty, Donnie, all of you guys. All the, all the student crew. All the student crew. crew. All the, yeah, it's, and the crew is just amazing. There's so many people that I can thank because the amount of work that they put into cleaning the set right after we're done to moving all of our... Um, props and everything is just um, so much work. Or people that have to dress me and Joel yeah, constantly. So You've got a quick change. I have they a quick change. So everyone, everyone who's worked on this, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. as always, there's so many behind the scenes that are that, that don't get to take a bow at the end of the night like uh, like we do. But uh, they're the ones they're the ones often doing the hardest work. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so plugs. Like, so yeah. I'm gonna be the only one to do a non last cyclist plug. All right. Yeah. That's fine. So. Um, well, that's you got the you you got the easy thing. You get to you just go. talk about what you're yeah. doing. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be doing a production of The Tempest coming up Memorial Day weekend with a Bard and Bourbon. Oh, we've had them on. So they're uh, great. So uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. So do you know your inebriated evening yet? I do not know which okay. night I will be imbibing, um, but I'm also <laughs> I on a personal level, the show is uh, I'm very excited about the show because. My uh, my twenty four year old kid has moved back to Milwaukee, and uh, they also got cast in the show, and so it'll be our first oh. chance to to work on a full production uh, together. Uh, one that I haven't uh, roped my kid into, one that we both got cast in. So, <laughs> nice, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. That's great. Cool. Cool. Well. well. I mean, I just, I do have to mention Wendy's because I've been oh. on the, on the <laughs> Just because if I don't, 
Eric will think this, the curse has been broken, but yeah, I am yeah. still looking for Wendy's. This is not a Theater Red production, but don't forget Wendy's Theater Red is still looking for you to uh, provide that corporate sponsorship since sure. the name and our theater company, everything was born there and we're a big fan. And yeah. hey, uh, Wendy's, I and actually have something else I have to say. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't we know if you've heard, oh, but yeah, Wendy's. Burger King just came out with the Impossible yeah. Burger, which is a vegan burger. And uh, so I love your French fries, but I got to tell you, the ball's in your like, court, man. The ball is in your court. Just to say, and Scappy, Scappy Radio would also love Wendy's. Absolutely, yeah, we'll plug Wendy's. Sure, absolutely. Are you kidding? Get there will be it. a giant editorial about Wendy's about how you have a new vegan burger that I can eat. You oh, can yeah. announce it on Scappy. Yep. Oh yeah, hit us up with that with uh, come on with that debut. Come on, Wendy's. Come on, make We're it waiting. happen. We know you're listening. I, we, we know you are. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dan Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that. The first is to head over to scopymag.com. That's our website. We post all of our articles there as well as all of our podcast episodes. You can also find us on social media on Facebook. We have a Facebook group uh, page called Scopy Magazine. We also have a Facebook group that we love and adore called Sounding Board where we talk about local arts, local politics, and astrology memes. Otherwise, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr under Scopy Mag, spelled the same way as the website S-C-A-P-I-M-A-G. And you can find the podcast, the one that you're listening to right now, in most podcast places, including Google Play, iTunes Podcasts, and Radio Public under Scopy Radio. And I'm here, as always, to talk about the importance of subscribing. If you head to our website, scopymag.com, and go to our subscribe page, there are a couple ways that you can do that. The first is to sign up for email blasts. This is huge because even though we post across social media platforms, Facebook buries our content. So if you want to see 100% of what we're doing and not just 30% of it, you should sign up for those email blasts. The second thing you can do is become a member. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us keep our lights on and keep doing what we're doing. Uh, If you are in a position to do so, there are some cool incentives associated with it, so give it some thought. Also with that, we're in the middle of a fundraiser called the Sustain Campaign. We're doing this to prevent having to put up a paywall. So if you are able, please consider it. Uh, Reach out to us if you have any questions. We also have merch for sale. If you head to scopymag.com slash store, you can get your new favorite t-shirt and that is a promise. Also, if you are a business or an entity or just have something fun to say and want to advertise with us, please feel free to reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So give a little, give a lot. And if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep.